evening. Good evening. We thank you all for being such patient listeners today and this evening. This year's orientation has been unusual in that we have made a space in our celebrations for the memorial um, and commemorative assembly this afternoon. This Reflections on Diversity program is an annual event and we are very grateful that you have come over this evening to hear our speakers. Montaigne has said, the most universal quality is diversity. I should have said, I'm Janet Dickerson, I guess it's written down there. Um, when I spoke on Sunday night, I spoke of the oneness of the class as well as the diversity from which the oneness is composed. While those of us who are here represent the broadest array of differences that can be assembled in such an intimate place, we all, and I'm talking about all of us, actually have a characteristic in common that makes us more alike than unlike, our giftedness and our passion for learning. As St. Paul has suggested, we have a diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. And as Dr. William Bowen, a former president of Princeton, has said, we urge you to be deliberate in seeking to capture otherness. We are all here to learn. And as the president and others have said, we are here to learn from one another. With that in mind, I'm very pleased to welcome you to tonight's program, Reflections on Diversity, which is the first of six co-curricular educational programs. They are coordinated. They're primarily for first-year students and they're framed to sing signal important community values, safety, responsibility, respect, and civility. Together, they, they comprise what we call the Residential Education Program, or the REP. They are introduced in differing formats. You have already received access to um, Alcohol EDU, an online education course, and Sex on a Saturday Night, a student-written and directed theatrical skit, will take place here in Richardson on Thursday evening. Your other REP selections, including a sexual health presentation and an LGBT and A panel discussion, will take place later this semester within your smaller advisee groups. Tonight's program, like the others which will be offered, is intended to foster respect and civility, to foster an understanding and appreciation of Princeton's diverse community and to inform you about issues that may become of concern to you. We also want to give you a bit of information about campus resources. To do this program, we've invited five speakers, one a member of the faculty, four undergraduates, who will share their stories with you. Following their formal presentations, your advisors will lead small group discussions in which you may share your own stories as well as your interests and concerns. We hope you will also begin to raise such ethical questions as, what is the nature of our obligation to our neighbors? What is the relation of human sameness to human difference? Before I 
I, I introduce our speakers. I do want to acknowledge Dean Maria Flores Mills, who is the coordinator of the REP program, and she works in the office of the Dean of Undergraduate Students. I'm not sure where Dean Mills is. Way up there. Oh, you can't see her, but she's... And, uh, Dean Flores Mills is located as her, with her colleagues in the Office of the Dean of Undergraduate Students on the third floor of West College, and we encourage you all to get to know your deans. Let me now introduce our speakers, and um, I think what I'll do is start with Professor Noliwe Rooks, who is the professor, and then I'll go in alphabetical order after that. You have a lot of information already introduced to, um, in the programs that you may have picked up. I wanted to point out also that this is a description of the residential education program and its offerings. But let me tell you briefly about Professor Rooks. She's Associate Director of African American Studies at Princeton, where she teaches courses on African American culture and history. Professor Rooks received her BA degree in English from Spelman College in Atlanta and has a doctorate in American Studies from the University of Iowa. She's been at Princeton since 1997. She's the author of Hair Raising, Beauty, Culture, and African American Women, which has won a Choice Award for Outstanding Ac Academic Book and other awards. She has also been associate editor for, or is, uh, for Paris Connections, African-American Artists in Paris, 1920 to 1975, which received an American Book Award. You may read other details about Professor Rooks's career in um, your program. I will note that she's served for several years as a counselor for battered women and children in Seattle, and she's going to be describing her story and telling you information which we hope will introduce you in um, our first selection of speakers who are describing, giving you an opportunity to reflect on the diversity in our community. Professor Rooks. Good evening, class of 2006. Welcome to Princeton. I know that you have had a long day uh, full of lots of speeches and reflections and uh, conversations. So what I thought I would do, instead of telling you my story, um, I'm going to tell you three stories about interactions involving racial diversity here on campus. Um, and ask you some questions and give you some things to think about. Um, I don't, as I was reading over this, I recognized that uh, I didn't necessarily have answers for a lot of the questions that I was going to ask you to think about. But let me be one of your first professors to tell you that we don't always know. And we welcome the chance for dialogue. And we look forward to y'all coming up with answers for things that we have not figured out. So, 
This has been a busy day for you, full of speeches, reflections, anecdotes, advice, and experiences. It's also a day that will long stand as a symbol for the need to reflect on diversity in all its guises and to try to make some sense of what diversity and difference really mean in our cultural consciousness and in our daily lives. Differences, I know you know, are not inherently bad. Diversity, we've all come to know, does not have to mean struggle or conflict. And yet, we as individuals often find ourselves struggling with the conflicts that differences and diversity bring our way, usually most forcefully when we're not looking. While you, while you will hear a number of ways that diversity is lived and experienced here on campus by students. I'm going to specifically talk about race as a form of diversity and tell you some stories about racial interactions on campus that involve students and, and raise questions for which I have no good answers. One of the things you will learn while you're here at Princeton, assuming you don't already know it, is that race is a social construction you'll learn that there's no biological basis for racial classifications. You'll learn that it's society and culture, but not science, that makes distinctions about good, better, and best based solely on racial affiliations. I know that you've come here knowing that all people and groups are equal and that diversity and difference should be celebrated. However, a recent article in the New York Times describing a brewing controversy over racial diversity in medicine makes me wonder what's at stake in our belief about ra racial diversity as a minor difference. The article describes a ch an exchange in the New York Journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, between two sides of a debate involving race in medicine. On one side is a group telling us that race has no scientific basis and should not be con a consideration for doctors when prescribing medicine. And on the other is a group pointing out that some medicines appear to act differently in different racial groups. The fact that certain medications for heart disease, for example, are consistently less effective in African Americans versus those of European ancestry is a, qu is a question this group would like to further explore. The fact that certain cancer drugs perform differently in people with specific racial ancestries is another. The first group claims that while there are certainly questions about these findings that need to be investigated, given the fact that race is merely a social construction, it could not possibly be the cause for these anomalies. The second group answers that the first group is probably right. But what if, just suppose, there are instances in science when race does have validity, and paying attention to it could save a life, cure an individual, or more effectively treat groups of people who belong to certain racial groups. The question is, is it at all possible that our desire to view all people as equal, and therefore the same, putting some lives at risk? My reflection on diversity is not a matter of life or death, as is raised by the questions about race and medicine. It is, however, based on three stories or moments that raise questions about racial diversity for which I do not, as I've said, have answers. One involves an interaction between Asian and Asian American students. One is about interactions between white and African American students. And the last is about African American students interacting with each other. At its core, it's a series of questions that come from anecdotal experience and popular culture 
And in it, I'm going to ask you to think about some ways that racial diversity can cause conflict despite our best intentions. These stories ask you to think about how the world of popular culture, as well as daily interaction, might hold lessons as important as those in the books and articles you read while students here. As I read over what I wanted to say to you, I recognize that my stories have no good ending and that the moral could very well be less than absolute or comforting. Hopefully, however, they will provide you an opportunity for further thought, reflection, and dialogue. This is story one. Last year, the closers, Abercrombie and Fitch, briefly inaugurated a t-shirt line featuring caricatures of Asian Americans. Did y'all see these? Did anybody see these? Yeah. The characters pictured on the t-shirts all had curved slits for eyes, large heads, and small bodies. The slogans on the t-shirts said things like, Wong Brothers Laundry Service, Two Wongs Can Make It White, and Pizza Dojo, Eat In or Walk Out, You Love Long Time. Drawing on both visual and cultural stereotypes of Asians and how they speak and the businesses in which they supposedly work, these t-shirts were poised to be what a spokesperson for the company described as a huge seller for us. Leaving aside questions of why a designer would assume that the cultural appetite for such images would ensure economic success, as well as the fact that the t-shirts quickly became collectible items on eBay, commanding prices three to four times what they sold for in the store. What I want to focus on is the response to the t-shirts here on campus by students. The Asian Pacific Heritage Month Committee joined with other groups around the country to undertake an immediate campaign to have the t-shirts pulled from circulation. Their efforts included petitions and a call-in campaign to the Abercrombie & Fitch customer service line. They also publicized the existence of the t-shirts on their website and organized a meeting to discuss the issue here on campus. Two of the students involved in raising awareness on campus were taking classes with me that semester, and during office hours, we had the occasion to discuss how the effort was going. The response that brought both students up short was from other Asian students who themselves thought the t-shirts were humorous, not particularly racially biased, and that the issue itself was blown out of proportion, giving it much more time and attention than it deserved. There's a Yoruba saying that states, it's not what you call me, it's what I answer to. For this handful of Asian and Asian American students, calling on racial stereotypes to describe them made far less, less difference than whether or not they chose to answer. The question for my students became, does the lack of agreement about the nature of a disease mean treatment is not called for? That's to say, is consensus a necessary prerequisite for deeming racism either present or absent? And what does it mean if an intended target of a racially-based action just plain doesn't care? Story two. Last year, I taught a course entitled Migration, Urban Space, and African-American Culture. The point of the course was to look at how changes in migration patterns for African-Americans to urban and suburban areas had impacted and continue to impact how we view African-American culture. In short, what geographic space has to do with views of race. For one assignment, the class watched two episodes of an HBO miniseries called The Corner. Did any of y'all see this? Yeah, some. 
Uh, the miniseries with an African-American director was based on a book by the same white author whose work became the basis for the long-running television series entitled Homicide, Life on the Street. The Corner basically followed the lives of a handful of people who either used or sold crack in inner-city Baltimore during the course of one month. The characters, based on the lives of real people, would at first glance be familiar to you as an image of African-American life and culture. You've seen similar in movies and videos. There's one household comprised of a mother so focused on buying crack on a daily basis, she often forgets to shop for food, make sure her children get to school, forgets teacher conferences and school events on a regular basis, and shoplifts from suburban shopping centers when in need of either gifts to celebrate her nine-year-old son's birthday or for money to pay the utilities. Her sister, who also lives in the house, is so focused on buying crack that she regularly takes the rent money and spends it on the corner. There's another household with a grown son who breaks his parents' heart on a regular basis due to his stealing from them in order to buy crack and heroin. There's a social worker who is fighting an uphill battle against the environment in order to keep her recreation center open in the hopes of providing positive and constructive activities for young children at risk in an environment overwhelmed by an invasive drug culture. There's lots of characters, all familiar, all hopeless, all making problematic choices, all living lives of what one writer called quiet desperation. Once it was time to discuss what they had seen, there were two responses that have stayed with me. The response that seemed to typify that of African-American students in the class was that these people were an embarrassment. There was nothing about any of their lives that was positive or uplifting, and they didn't believe that these stories were based on real life as, quote, black people just don't act like that. The response from one of the white students, in particular, was equally dismissive of the program. She said simply, the show frustrated her because there's no one for me to feel sorry for, and besides, I don't like any of them. When you see people like this, there's always to be some, supposed to be someone you like and feel sorry for. All agreed that the program was flawed. All agreed that this was primarily because what they saw made them uncomfortable. All agreed that their comfort was a prerequisite for success. The question is, is a clear victim, loser, or sympathetic character necessary to advance a successful argument about racial inequality? That is, do we have to like, understand, or be moved to pity a group for a representation of race to be considered real? Third story, last story. The last story I want to tell you is based on the work of a student who graduated from Princeton two years ago. As you all undoubtedly know, a big focus of your senior year will be writing a senior thesis. These theses are generally original pieces of research that, depending on your major, allow you to explore an area of culture, research, or scholarship that's of interest to you. This particular student was a psychology major who was also getting a certificate in African American Studies. However, instead of only focusing on how African-American students on campus felt in relation to white students and teachers, she broadened her questioning to ask how intra-racial interactions affected the psychological health of African-American students. She completed her research by surveying 94% of African-American students on campus, 6% chose for various reasons not to participate. What she found was that overwhelmingly, 
the moments leading to depression and feelings of isolation and hopelessness increased with the distance from groups of African-American students. She further found that such isolation was often perceived as having been consciously inflicted as a result of a number of factors. For example, if some African-American students chose to dress or talk in ways that were not perceived as keeping it real, they could be banished from the group. If individual African-American students were believed to be more interested in spending time with friends who were not African-American, they could again be banished from the group. If some students were less than quick to acknowledge other African-American students when they met them on campus or not consistent in their attendance at social and political events held by African-American groups on campus, they could be banished from the group. What this student found was that the pressure of being African-American in certain ways or of performing their race in ways deemed appropriate by the group exacerbated the pressure they felt coming from outside. The question here is who decides what's an appropriate racial performance? Where do they learn it? And how is it that we so clearly know them when we see them? As I told you at the outset, I have stories for you and have questions for you to think about. I don't know if it's possible to advance the cause of racial tolerance and understanding if everyone dislikes the characters charged with doing the advancing. I don't know why certain forms of being, looking, dressing, and acting are still so firmly tied with views of race. I don't know if it matters whether or not some believe that responding to instances of racial stereotyping is still of primary concern. If I have a moral, it's that you don't learn all you know about diversity in neat, easy lessons. There are feelings, circumstances, and moments that catch us all unaware and run counter to what it is we think we know and believe. What we read, what we wear, what we watch on television, who we choose to speak with as we walk across campus, can all be moments that hold answers to questions about diversity we didn't even know we were asking. There are still questions needing answers yet to be asked. There are connections still unmade. There are ways of seeing that ask us to go beyond the simple need to just be aware, treat others as we'd like to be treated, and have tolerance. During your years here at Princeton, for those who are in groups usually described as underrepresented, as well as those described as dominant, Questions of diversity and our willingness to reflect on them may arise out of conflict or a deep desire to learn. The key to finding the answers you will see is to be willing to at least ask the question. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Rooks. Our next speaker is Antoine Grady, class of 03. Antoine is from Severn, Maryland. He says that's near Annapolis, Baltimore, all those? Both? All right. Maryland's a small state, right? Um, Antoine is a politics major with um, an intention to get certificates in political economy and East Asian studies. He's a musician who is a member of the Princeton University Orchestra and Wind Ensemble. You're also 
uh, Wilson College peer advisor, or you had been, and are a dorm assistant in an upper-class residence hall at this time, and you are co-cap. You were co-captain of the men's tennis team, um, and had served as treasurer as well. So, Antoine Grady will be the next speaker. Thank you. Good evening, class of 2006. When I was first asked by Dean Fordyce Mills to speak at this assembly, I was in Japan participating in the Princeton and Ishikawa program. Diversity was definitely on the forefront of my mind. You'd be surprised how easily a six-foot black male can stick out in a country that's 99% Japanese. For many of the children that I met, I was the first American, let alone African-American, they'd ever met. During my two-month stay, I had two children scream at the sight of me, three walk into walls because they were so preoccupied by staring at me. <laughs> I brought one girl to tears just by saying konnichiwa, and I had one toddler jump out of a stroller in the middle of a park and run towards me saying, Papa, Papa, while his mother and I stared at each other in complete disbelief, and his father yelled back, that is not your father. <laughs> if experiences such as these don't remind you that you're different, I'm not sure what will. As I began thinking about this speech, I ran into several blocks. I did not know what it was that I should say to you. I'm not a representative of any association or club on campus, and I wondered what message I could possibly deliver. I asked some of the other exchange students about their opinions, and they responded with questions such as, well, are you supposed to talk about being black at Princeton or being gay at Princeton? The truth is I cannot separate the two. They're both a part of who I am, how I think, and what I believe. I also cannot speak for anyone other than myself and my experiences. My status as a minority has definitely impacted my three years at Princeton, but I cannot speak of the black experience or the gay experience. If there's one thing I can say is that your college experience is what you make of it, and this also applies to issues of diversity. During your years at Princeton, you inevitably will be placed in similar situations where you're forced to deal with aspects of your life that may be greatly different from your peers. It is these moments when I feel most vulnerable and most unsure of myself. For me, I felt this pressure most when I was dealing with the question of whether or not to come out to my new friends at Princeton. I had told some of my closest friends in high school that I was gay, but after coming out to my parents and dealing with their reaction, I was unsure of how the students here would receive me. After a few weeks, I grew tired of switching pronouns and talking about my girlfriend, but I was still afraid to open up. It was, a fear, it was this fear that was keeping me from truly enjoying my time here. I finally gained the courage to come out to one of my RAs, who was also gay. It was a great relief, and he and his friends were completely supportive of me. But I was still struggling with the question of when to tell my friends. But little did I know, they overheard a conversation I had with my RA, and they already knew I was gay. They were just waiting for me to finally tell them. When I finally gathered up the courage to tell them, they were all wonderful, and they also didn't tell me they already knew until almost a year later. <laughs> to say that my friends were supportive of me would be a gross understatement. I cannot even express in words how their actions have affected me. Even now, three years later, um, when I see them buying LGBT t-shirts or reminding me to wear jeans on Gay Jeans Day, it baffles me how lucky I am to have such great friends. Initially, the one thing from stopping me from realizing this was my own fear. I felt no pressure whatsoever from my friends. They did not question me or constantly bring up the subject. Instead, they waited for, until I was ready. They showed their support merely by their patience. It did not require words for them, to, for them to display their acceptance. I have an incredibly diverse group of friends. I know it may sound cliche, but when we're together, I honestly forget about these differences. My being gay is like any other part of my personality, and it's not the defining characteristic. For me, Princeton is by, by far the most diverse institution which I have been a member. In addition to making these wonderful new friends, I have learned more about myself, my beliefs, and the beliefs of others. 
These experiences have changed some of those beliefs and in the process changed me as well. That said, I've also had bad experiences here that have ranged from small annoyances to feelings of anger or fear. Princeton may be an institution of higher learning, but it is no different from the real world in the sense that you encounter people with whom you do not agree and probably never will, but you still have to find a way to handle the situation. You also have a great opportunity to interact with people who may know very little about you, your background, or vice versa. I believe some of the main issues when dealing with diversity stem from this exchange. We are aware that people are different, but we must be willing to share ourselves and our experiences with others. And on the other hand, we must be willing to, to accept those advances from those people. You will have bad experiences, but that is inevitable. You still have to make the effort. Another of my experiences here at Princeton reminded me of just that. My sophomore year, I was in the street um, with a friend who was visiting who was also gay. We met up with a couple of friends. At the end of the night, we ended up at one of the eating clubs. He and I were standing alone in the corner when a football player, about 6'4", around 300 pounds, walked over, pointed at us, and asked, are you two gay? Apparently, it was very obvious. I don't know what we were doing, but... I'm 5'11", about 150 pounds, and my friend is much, bizarre, is much bigger, so honestly, I was a little worried. I looked at my friend with a complete look of fear in my face, wondering what I should say. And as he's still standing in front of me, still pointing, still 6'4", and still twice the size of me, I answered yes while taking one giant step backward and hiding behind my friend. And then he replies, so am I. <laughs> I think I was more shocked than the father of the, poor, of the boy who called me Papa. Whenever I look back on that experience, it always makes me laugh, but it always still reminds me that if you give people a chance, they just might surprise you. Thank you all for listening, and welcome to Princeton. Next speaker is Rakiba Huck. Yes, I say that right. From West Windsor, New Jersey. And if you're not from uh, if you're not from New Jersey, you should know that's really close by. Uh, so that may be a place for you to go and get dinner sometime. I'm inviting that. Uh, I, I'm ad libbing. I made that up. I'm sorry. Rakiba is also a member of the class of 03. In high school, she was on the debate team. She has lived in New Jersey since she was eight years old. She was born in Minnesota. She's a recipient of many major academic honors. And here at Princeton, she has won the Shapiro Prize for Academic Excellence. She is president, president of the Princeton Muslim Students Association, um, she's a Woodrow Wilson School student. Last summer, she worked as an intern at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. This summer, she served as an intern at Middle East Insight in Washington. In the fall of 2001, she was a student at the Woodrow Wilson School Program in Oxford, England. Akiba. Good evening, class of 06. When I was sitting in this auditorium three years ago for our Reflections on Diversity Night, I really had no idea what to expect from Princeton in terms of meeting different kinds of people. Sure, I'd grown up only 15 minutes down Route 1, had come up to town countless times during high school, 
But that was only to grab a bite, Hoagie Haven or Halo Pub, places you'll definitely come to love while you're here. So I'd never really gotten a feel for what the student body was like. Sitting here that night, looking around at my class, Princeton didn't seem that diverse to me at all. Keep in mind, I came from a pretty huge public high school with 500 people in my year alone, where practically every ethnic minority group you can name was represented in the hallways. Here, the only diversity seemed to be represented by the handful of students asked to speak that night on stage. Ironically, though, what I was really looking for when I was scanning the auditorium for diversity was for people who looked like me, who were the same as me. I wasn't sure I'd be comfortable being so obviously Muslim and therefore so obviously different. I wanted to see others like me so I could blend in as part of a group. In judging how diverse Princeton was that night, I was actually seeing how many me's there were at Princeton. Then I went back to my room. It suddenly hit me that I was looking at diversity in completely the wrong way. My room was a very picture of true diversity. If Princeton were making a brochure on its diverse community, we should have been on the cover. One of my roommates was an ethnic Chinese Malaysian, another was half African American, half Honduran, and the third was Irish American. Along with me, a Bangladeshi American, we covered three fades, five continents, and about nine languages. My roommates were as different from me as possible, but trust me, they made much better roommates than people just like me would have been. The funny thing is, I hadn't even wanted roommates that year. I'm an only child, and I was used to having my own space. But I couldn't be more grateful that things turned out the way they did. I learned more from my roommates about life, other cultures, even myself, than I did from any other part of my Princeton experience that year. We discussed religion, ate samosas and roti chanai, learned how to rumba, and had tons of fun along the way. In fact, I'm still roomies with two of them. I had it lucky. Since my room was so multicultural, it was relatively easy for me to tap into Princeton's diversity. But with a little effort, everyone here can enjoy the experience of meeting and learning about different people, which is as much an educational opportunity afforded by Princeton as classes and lectures. This opportunity is really rare in life outside of school. Getting to know about other lifestyles and cultures will never be as accessible and convenient as it is now. So go out and talk to people. Don't be shy about asking them questions or answering any they might ask you. I've had people I've just been introduced to ask me about my religion and way of life, and not being one to pass up a chance to talk about myself, I've been more than happy to answer them and ask them a few questions, too. Of course, some questions are a little bit more intelligent than others. I had one person ask me whether I actually shower with the scarf on, but hey, it's all fair game. <laughs> Any qualms I had as to being one of the two or three scarf-wearing, readily apparent Muslims on campus have long gone. I'm proud to represent who I am at a place like Princeton, and all of you should be proud to represent who you are as well. So I know it's incredibly simple and comfortable to just stick with what you know, but during the next four years, while you're writing papers, bickering clubs, going to house parties, take some time out to watch a dance performance of Nacho or Ballet Folklorico, to attend the Southeast Asian Students Banquet, to eat a Ramadan meal with the Muslim Students Association, or Seder dinner at the Center for Jewish Life. Even if it's just a few times during all four years, even if it takes a little more effort than going to the street with your friends, give it a try and you won't be sorry you did. Remember, Princeton is only as diverse as you make it. Thanks and have a great four years. Next is Patricia Fossas, who is from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, she, too, is a member of the class of 03. She loves languages and culture and history. And she, Patricia, you are a Woodrow Wilson School major with a certificate 
working to get a certificate in French as well. You're a leader of Latino organizations on campus and serve, have served as a student ambassador to your high school. Patricia has recently returned from an internship at, I'm not sure I can say this correctly, Ayuda en Acción, Action Aid in Madrid, Spain. Is that right? Good evening. As all my fellow students here, I've also been asked to speak to you about diversity. So here it goes. Um, when I came to this event three years ago, I listened to a student of Native American descent speak about her experience at Princeton, and I was very amazed at the fact that she was the only person in this university who spoke her native tongue. And I recall feeling very, very happy that at least I knew that more people spoke my first language, Spanish. When I was asked to come here tonight and speak to you about diversity, a million thoughts and impressions rushed through my mind. Statistics weren't among them. For that reason, and for the fact that I didn't look them up, I can't really cite the official statistics or diversity numbers for Princeton or how we compare to your other universities in this field. What I can tell you comes strictly from the experiences I lived during my four years here. I mean three, sorry. <laughs> In my heart, I consider Princeton to be a microcosm of many of the realities that we can find in the world today. Diversity is not just a matter of race or ethnicity, but of having a range of people with different backgrounds, interests, nationality, religions, points of view. Coming from Puerto Rico, a beautiful yet very small island in the Caribbean, I remember arriving on campus and being nervous and scared about moving to a place so different and far away from home. My first taste of Princeton life was certainly a shocker. It came in the form of a meeting with my RA and my six roommates. Now let me tell you that with six roommates, it's pretty hard not to get a fair share of diversity. Among them were uh, Irish citizen, a half-Japanese, half-Jewish girl, one Korean, and another quintessentially American. The unique ways of each one of them opened new worlds to me. After three years, and indeed going on to four years of friendships, these girls are my best friends and sisters. I believe that Princeton's 250-plus student organizations, with more being formed even as we speak, reflect the, incredi the incredible scope of variety of this university. Although I consider myself both American and Latino because of the unique history of my country, living in the continental U.S. certainly heightened my awareness of my Latino heritage, making me miss all those little details, such as speaking in Espanol, eating arroz con habichuela y lechón, and of course, dancing to the rhythms of salsa and merengue. I was very lucky that others who had come before me felt the same way and had gotten together to create one of those 250 student organizations, Acción Puerto Riqueña y Amigos, of which I've now been president for two years. Through my experience and my sharing with this club and the Latino Heritage Month Board, I've had the fortune of meeting other Latin American students 
from which I have learned the differences and the similarities that exist among a people that for one reason or another have been classified under the same name. The only real problem I foresee for you guys is that due to the great wealth of diversity and the many things that will claim your attention, it will be difficult for you to partake of all the opportunities that will be offered during your short years at Princeton. If there's only one thing, yes, one I ask, that I want you to take away from this message is to cultivate interpersonal relationships among you yourselves, because this is a very rewarding endeavor. My major is international affairs, and even though I love to travel and explore other countries, I have never ever wanted to leave Princeton to study abroad. I love this place, I really do. And since we only have four years here, I want to experience them to the maximum. However, I stand amazed at the resources of this university, which are infinite. I have spent the past two summers working in Europe, both in Paris and in Madrid, living day in and day out with the natives and learning all about their cultures and languages. These have been the best summers I've ever spent. In Spain, I work for an NGO, Ayuda en Acción, which can be literally translated as Help in Action, whose purpose is in helping the, in the development of third world countries by improving their standard of living. In their mission statement, I found the following quote, Ayuda en Acción acts for the recognition of the innate dignity and value of each person and the value of diversity. This phrase struck me because it expresses something so simple yet so essential, a maxim, I believe, that if applied and respected universally would eliminate many of the problems that this society faces. Unfortunately, in the world we live in, diversity and human life are scarcely appreciated virtues. Today, the world, especially we Americans, Unite in sorrow to commemorate an anniversary that will not soon be forgotten. The tragic events that occurred one year to this day demonstrate the disastrous consequences that can be created by close-mindedness, evil, and hatred, ensuing from a refusal to accept diversity and human rights. No person can forget the images or the pain Yet I also think that we will remember how the people in America, and indeed in the whole world, came together as one to help each other and defend our nation. I hope, I sincerely hope, that it is not only tragedies like this that trigger the spirit of brotherhood that should form an integral part of our lives. Humans have a tendency to generalize and stereotype people. It is something that we automatically do. And I believe that this is one of the greatest harms that we do to ourselves because preconceived notions, are, they close us off to experiences that might have been the most enriching for our personal development. Thus, tonight, I challenge you to become both teachers and students of one another, adopting the motto of Ajuda en Acción by embracing the value of diversity. And now, just to end, Welcome home and fasten your seatbelts, because this is going to be an incredibly exciting yet bumpy ride. Thank you and enjoy.
Thank you very much. Our last speaker tonight is David Podrosky, who is our youngest speaker, too. I don't know about age, but um, you're a member of the class of 2005 and a, res and a member of Butler College. Now, is there anybody here from Butler College? David was, thank you. I, I know there are others of you here. We won't call out all of them tonight. David resides in Yardley, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Pensbury High School there. He's a member of the Orange Key Guide Group, and you, he may have been your tour guide when you came to take a look at Princeton last year. He's also a member of the Agape Christian Fellowship and the USG Undergraduate Student Government Committee on Disabilities. You're thinking at this time of possibly majoring in economics. Yes. David. Good evening. Ricardo Luna, a Peruvian diplomat and member of Princeton's undergraduate class of 1964, once stated, it's not the campus memories that link us together. It's the values we share. As you probably gathered from the title of tonight's program, Princeton University values the diversity found on its campus. But the inclusion of physical disabilities as a valuable and integral aspect of diversity is a relatively new concept in the United States. The Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, as it is more commonly called, which protects certain rights for individuals with disabilities, was passed only 12 years ago. And until 1975, institutionalization, a system that usually denied the right of public education to children with disabilities, effectively removed disabled Americans from society. The campaign to incorporate people with disabilities into society is a relatively new manifestation of American values. Unfortunately, I must admit working for the cause of the disabled is a new expression of my values as well, for I did not embrace this cause until I became disabled. In June of 1997, at the end of my eighth grade year, I suffered a spinal cord injury as a result of a diving accident. My injury was severe enough to render me a quadriplegic. Quadriplegia is any paralysis that affects all four of a person's limbs. My legs and trunk are completely paralyzed. My triceps and fingers are paralyzed as well. This has been my predicament for the past five years, including my freshman year here at the university. I hope that by telling you about my experiences at Princeton that pertain to my disabilities, you'll avoid the mistake I made and begin to celebrate today the value people with disabilities add to our world. I still remember my first day here at Princeton when I had to endure a trial all of you experienced just a few days ago. This trial was freshman registration at Dillon Gymnasium. I know freshman registration may have gone well for most of you, but it was a struggle for me. When I came to the entrance of Dillon, I immediately noticed there was no ramp in front of the building, only steps. For most of you, climbing a few steps to enter a building is no problem. For me, a few steps are a major problem 
because despite how impressive my wheelchair driving abilities are, I am still currently unable to drive up steps. <laughs> After staring at the steps for a couple of seconds, I thought, no worries. There's probably an accessible entrance on the side of the building. And sure enough, there was. But when I got to the accessible door, it was locked. After waiting about 15 minutes, an anonymous undergraduate came to my rescue and opened the door from the inside. After that door opened, I thought the worst was over. Well, and then I saw the elevator. The elevator reminded me of that ride at Walt Disney World named the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, <laughs> where you are in an elevator that, after taking you up the tower, suddenly drops multiple stories. Well. I was, but unlike the ride, I was not sure if the elevator at Dillon would stop just before it hit the bottom. So after some hesitation, I went into the elevator and watched as it literally shook its way up a number of floors. But when I finally entered the gymnasium where registration was taking place, I thought again to myself that the worst was over and registration would go smoothly. I felt that after all, what more could be allowed to happen to me after the 35-minute ordeal I had just to get in to the gymnasium? Did not, did not the fates owe me a reprieve? Well, the answer to that question was no. Registration was missing my packet, there was a problem with my ID card, and the Honor Committee representative told me that I did not demonstrate my understanding of the Honor Code in the... Yeah, I hear it happens a lot. <laughs> At the end of registration, I thought that I had learned a frightening lesson. I thought that I had learned that I was in store for a long and trying freshman year here at Princeton. Fortunately, the lesson that I thought I had learned on freshman registration could not have been farther from the truth. My freshman year here was incredible, in large part because of the way people at the university approached my disability. Living with a disability, I have found that people are often uncomfortable around me. During the past five years, I've learned that if I want to ease the discomfort my wheelchair causes, I must take the initiative and make others, and I must take the initiative and make the effort to ease the awkward emotions of others. Often this effort is one-sided. Refreshingly, when I entered Princeton, Others made an effort as well to make me comfortable around them. From the start, most of my fellow undergraduates accepted me as their equal and included me in their activities, which is something people seldom do with wheelchair-bound individuals. Undergraduates, however, were not the only members of the Princeton community that welcomed me with their actions as well as their, wor as well as their words. The faculty has treated me with the same professionalism and has held me to the same academic standards as I would any other student. And that is all I ask. I have learned in the past five years that one of my desires is to be one of the crowd, to blend in, to not, to not be considered different. And if I ever were to become distinguished from among my peers, I hope it would not be because I was disabled. Rather, I hope it would be, as Dr. Martin Luther King would say, simply because of the content of my character. Norman Thomas once said, love for Princeton as for our country 
does not blind us to imperfections. Though I have learned that Princeton embraces diversity, I see that more needs to be done. Thankfully, there are many ways to get involved with embracing diversity on campus. Starting this semester, I am proud to be a part of a new undergraduate student government committee that will devote itself exclusively to addressing issues pertaining to disabled students. And sustained dialogue groups on campus facilitate valuable discussion that further contributes to the understanding of diversity. I challenge all of you to look into joining one of these groups or to find some other organized way of making diversity on campus a continued priority. The next time you walk into the Frist Campus Center, I suggest you take a look at some of the quotes on the walls of the 100 level. One wall has a favorite quote of mine regarding Princeton University. Woodrow Wilson stated 100 years ago, while addressing a group of students, there is a sense, a very real sense, not mystical, but plain fact of experience in which the spirit of truth, of knowledge, of hope, of revelation dwells in a place like this. Wilson's quote is a celebration of Princeton's values, which today includes the celebration of and advocacy on behalf of disabled persons. As you leave Alexander Hall tonight, I hope you will let yourself begin to cling to the values found here at Princeton. By doing so, you will gain the most from your time here. Because Ricardo Luna was right, it is not the beauty of campus or classes or activities that make Princeton a community with global impact. It is the values its members share that give Princeton its ability to change the world for the better. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening, and I want to thank our speakers again, and perhaps you'll give them all a round of applause. What you've heard is a representative set of stories as well as some questions that are intended to help you probe and think about your own experiences that in, in, include the characteristics that make you special as well as your own goals during your time of education here. I wanted to just let you know about a few resources that are available to you as you continue your exploration of diversity and your reflections on it. First of all, you may have received this brochure, which is titled Race, Ethnicity, and Cross-Cultural Encounter. And what it does is to describe 
courses. This is uh, last year's version. The color might be different, but I doubt it. I don't know. Um, that describes courses that are available to you that will enable you to study a range of um, information in, that is related to diversity, race, ethnicity, and cross-cultural issues. In addition to that, I, I want to call your attention to the fact that we do have an ombuds office, a variety of cultural and performing arts groups, many of which you might have seen this week, the Carl A. Field Center for Equality and Cultural Understanding, which is on Prospect Street at the corner of Olden, as well as a women's center and an international center, both located in the Frisk Campus Center. The Frisk Center and the Office of Religious Life also have advising and programming resources available to you if you're interested in sponsoring programs or activities or even salsa parties um, that might encourage your peers and your friends and others to experience diversity and to hear from speakers who can continue to inform you and illuminate your imagination. This year, we also will have funds available for intergroup dialogue activities like sustained dialogue, supported by a grant from the Bildner Foundation. And there's information online about funding resources that are available to you. So thank you again for coming tonight and listening. We don't encourage you to linger too long because we do expect you to return to your residential colleges and to, con to continue this conversation in your small advisory groups. But I thank those of you who have been willing to speak as well as all of you who have taken time to listen. Good night.